It's the Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast, featuring stories of royals, scandals, and true crime. Here are your hosts, Carrie and Larissa. What do you got on your mind, girl? Because you and I have been talking a lot about plane crashes lately. I watched a movie the other night that I've been meaning to watch. It's been on my Netflix list. It had, I don't want to call him Dorian Gray, but whatever guy was in Fifty Shades of Gray. Mm-hmm. He's in it and he plays, it's based on a true story about this, the Irish army who went to help in like a UN. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, what? the UN was established to ensure that the nations of the world would never again engage in another world war. As a neutral country, we have a second wave of Irish soldiers to be sent into the Congo. Jesus fucking snake! The compound is a joke. We're wide open. They would never dare attack United Nations company. You've never been in battle. Do you have a plan? Just to prove there's no need for us. surrender if you continue to attack we will continue to respond you do realize that you are outnumbered by a factor of 20 you need reinforcements there are larger things here at play than you can possibly imagine i don't give a damn about the larger things tell me what i'm supposed to do in each of our part to play in history yours is happening right now they're coming they were completely surrounded and when you're watching it you get so mad because you really see the bureaucracy they're wow. like, oh, don't get your panties in the twist. Are you, What are you upset about? He's like, I have thousands of people shooting at us. We have no guns, no drinking water. We need reinforcements. Like, why did you? And meanwhile, I didn't even know this, but the Irish army have never fought in a war. None of these troops had ever had any experience because I guess Ireland's always neutral. Really? I had no idea. Yeah. Were they peacekeepers? What were they? Where And where were they? Yeah, they were there for peacekeeping. Where were they? Congolese Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba called on the United Nations for help. Secretary General Doug Hammarskjöld dreamt of transforming the UN into an instrument for resolving international crises. Optimistically, he saw the Congo as an ideal opportunity to show what he could accomplish. UN peacekeepers poured quickly into the Congo and Belgian troops withdrew except from the wealthiest province, Katanga. With Belgian encouragement and support, its president, Moise Chomba, declared independence, backed by mining company Union Miniere. It would be understood that were the United Nations to act as proposed, the Belgian government would see its way to withdraw. It follows that the United Nations force would not be authorized to action beyond self-defense. It follows further Hammarskjöld managed to persuade Chomba to allow UN troops into Elizabethville, Katanga's capital, and the Belgian army officially withdrew. But hundreds of Belgian soldiers remained behind to run Chomba's army. When Lumumba tried to invade Katanga with Soviet support, the CIA paid Army Chief Colonel Joseph Mobutu to overthrow him and dissolve Parliament. The UN did not recognize Mobutu, and now took over the immense task of running the Congo and restoring law and order. Basically, the mining companies were trying to keep their property 
and their profits because the new prime minister that got voted in wanted to nationalize the mines and ma- and have the people in the Congo own the mines rather than the big companies. And he got murdered. And so they sent in the Irish army. When they get home, because they surrendered and they were kept in prison for a month because they the commander was like, I don't, the guy who's playing by Fifty Shades guy with like a complete 1970s, like porn mustache. Nice. <laughs> yeah. What's it, is his name Jamie Dornan? Yes, that's him. That's okay. him. He didn't want to lose any more men. Now, night falls very quickly in the Congo. And when I thought it had fallen sufficiently, I got out of my trench. I heard four uh, rounds of mortar fire being set off. And the next thing I knew was they were whistling over my head. And I realized that they were coming in my direction. I was probably the target. I thought I saw a, a slight depression on the ground, threw myself into that, covered my head and waited for the first two bombs. And I was going to get out of there for the next two. I heard the two rounds going off quite close to me. Whatever length that was, I don't know. I jumped up immediately and ran like the Dickens. And I heard the next two shots going off behind me. But I was 50 yards away at this stage. And then I realized that my uh, legs were wet and that my trousers was flapping against uh, wetness. And I looked down and I saw that I was bleeding from the legs. I was injured at nightfall. There was then a following nightfall and the morning after that, found my weapon under my stretcher, that's what I was on, grabbed it and ran back to the trenches where I was kind of comfortable with my own men. They put up such a gallant fight. They were able to hold their positions for three days and they were severely outnumbered. So when they got home, they just dusted it under the rug and they were actually treated like they were cowards because they had surrendered and didn't fight to the last man and several of the people in the troops actually killed themselves even though they were hardcore catholic of course i'm watching this movie it's you know it wasn't my favorite military movie but the story behind it i had never heard of so i was interested in it what was interesting to me is that besides the fact i hadn't heard of it is the guy who was in charge of the un at that time was flying he his plane crashes but does he die? Yeah, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So of course that even adds to whose fault is it? Yeah. The United Nations in New York on the eve of the opening of its 16th assembly session is plunged into mourning upon the passing of Dag Hammarskjöld. More than eight years ago, on April 14, 1953, he had assumed his difficult post as the successor to Trigby Lee. The serious, quietly courageous Swedish diplomat was to bring new stature to the job of chief administrative officer of the UN. And in his quest for peace, he met death. You know, who's behind this big failure, obviously, of the peace troops? But I had never heard of that. He totally, his plane got, basically, they think he was assassinated. It got tampered with, right? It all got pushed under the rug. It just was this embarrassment to the UN and they didn't want to lose power or whatever. What year was this? Because the weird thing is, is the UN, when they were in Bosnia and Croatia, they did nothing. I mean, they were instructed to just stand back. Set them in there. They had no supplies, nothing. And they were like, so what are we doing here? And this outpost. And it happened in 1960. Oh, okay. So he wasn't actually flying it, but he was a passenger on it? Yeah, so 14 other people were aboard, UN staffers and the planes crew, and a single survivor died of his injuries six days later. This could either be the world's biggest murder mystery or 
the world's most idiotic conspiracy theory. He was going to change the way that Africa dealt with the rest of the world financially. And he was a threat. The lights were switched off at the airport. And he just told me. Did he tell you who gave him the order to bring down the plane? He had the death card on his collar. How many people did it uh, involve, Sama? Uh, anything from 5,000 people upwards. That many? That many. So Sama was a big organization. And, and, and what kind of operations were you doing? Well, it was clandestine operations. We were involved in uh, coups, taking over countries for other leaders. We were involved in Mozambique, uh, spreading uh, the AIDS virus through medical conditions. We were involved in uh, Angola with Dr. Jonas Savimbi for various operations. We got military support. So people were killed during these operations? Oh, definitely. We you mentioned... Uh, you're, you're, can, 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 can we no, okay, I, I just no, do the question okay, again okay, and then you can pop in. Yeah. You mentioned actively spreading AIDS? There was a unit in Mos uh, from Saima that uh, one of the things was that we went into African countries. And how was that done exactly? Through inoculation. Through vaccines? Yeah, through vaccines. Pretending to inoculate people and that type of thing. The idea, idea being to kill black people? Yeah, to eradicate black people. You must understand the concept was that AIDS was a killer. It was incurable at that point in time. So it was led to believe that if you infected people, it was the, it was the quick, non-militaristic um, approach. Wow, that kind of reminds me, well, it's not the same situation, but remember Croatia when the statesman was going to visit the war and in Dubrovnik the plane crash let's see 19 it was 1996 reporting the plane carrying commerce secretary Ron Brown has reportedly crashed in the former Yugoslavia the plane on its way to Dubrovnik it was the United States Air Force Boeing CT-43A and weather weather took it down. But the Secretary of Commerce, Ron Brown, and 34 other people died. They were uh, attempting an instrument approach to Dubrovnik Airport. And the weather was really bad and they died on that hillside. And there's a big monument erected to him. Wednesday, April the 3rd, 1996. A raw spring day near the city of Dubrovnik, Croatia. Rain pelts the runway at the city's airport. A small group of diplomats hurry through the storm, trying to keep dry. They're part of a delegation that's just touched down. Among them, the Croatian Prime Minister and the American ambassador to the region, Peter Galbraith. The flight into Dubrovnik was a scary flight. We couldn't see anything at all. At that point, I'd been ambassador to Croatia for nearly three years, and I'd done uh, uh, a lot of shuttle diplomacy, and it certainly was one of the most uncomfortable. The weather that made Galbraith's landing so bad isn't letting up. In fact, commercial flights into Dubrovnik have been cancelled. But the ambassador and the others aren't waiting for a commercial flight. They're here to greet IFO 21, 
a US Air Force jet on a delicate mission. The plane is a specially designed 737. The Air Force has a small fleet of these jets to transport high-profile guests around the world. The cabin has everything needed to do business and politics 10,000 meters in the sky. Today, the cabin is filled with what the military call DVs, distinguished visitors. This group is led by United States Secretary of Commerce, Ron Brown. Ron Brown was a very smooth, capable individual. He was a, a Washington insider, uh, and he had all the skills that, that go with that. IFO 21 Dubrovnik approach, do you read? IFO 21 has a CPI, or crash position indicator, on board. IFO 21, do you read? If the plane went down, the CPI should be sending out an ultra-high frequency signal. But the Dubrovnik airport, as well as lacking radar, does not have the equipment to pick up the signal. I-421 Dubrovnik approach, do you read? The pilots, blinded by rain. Did a final act of war bring the plane down? The White House demands answers. When the investigation is over, the Air Force itself is held responsible. But, I mean, this is not the same case, because in your case, the guy, that had to be foul play. They had to want to get rid of him. Yeah, because he was trying to control what was going on with those mines. And there's a documentary out called Cold, Cold Case Hammer Scold. I'm sorry if I'm saying that. Oh, are you going to watch it? I want to watch that. Yeah, I think I am. Wasn't there also a plane crash with Polish leaders or something like that? Uh, when? What year? I just automatically assume you know everything about Eastern Europe. Uh, plane crashes? Plane? I probably know more. There was leadership that on that plane crash. And it, you know how... We can't have the VP and the president yeah. in the same plane. Well, I think they had a bunch of their oh wait leadership. President. Did you find it? Smolensk air disaster. On April 10th, 2010, a Tupolev Tu-154 aircraft operating Polish Air Force Flight 101 crashed near the Russian city of Smolensk, killing all 96 people on board. Among the victims were the president of Poland, Lech Kaczynski, and his wife Maria, the former president of Poland in exile, Rizard Kazarowski, the chief of the Polish general staff and other senior Polish military officers, the, the president of the National Bank of Poland, Polish government officials, 18 members of the Polish parliament. That has to be the one, right? Yeah, that's definitely the one. Senior members of the Polish clergy and the relatives of victims of the Katyn massacre. The group was arriving from Warsaw to attend an event commemorating the 70th anniversary of the massacre, which took place not far from Smolensk. Yep, that would be the one. It all started 15 months earlier. Polish Air Force Flight 101 is carrying 89 passengers, including President Lech Kaczynski. Four of Poland's best pilots are in the cockpit. They're elite military airmen from the country's Special Aviation Regiment. Just after 10 o'clock, the plane begins its descent to Smolensk. The state flight from Warsaw took off at 9.27 this morning. The passengers are a cross-section of the Polish elite, dignitaries on their way to mark a grim and controversial anniversary. This anniversary was on April the 10th. It was a great Polish tragedy, the murder of Polish soldiers in World War II by Stalin. 
1940, Stalinist forces marched 22,000 Polish officers and intellectuals into Russia's Katyn forest to be executed. The Soviet government took the decision, the document still exists, to murder them all. For decades after World War II, the Soviet Union held Poland firmly in its grip. Until the fall of communism, the Soviets denied all responsibility for the Katyn massacre. The history of Polish-Russian relations has been very difficult, especially when it comes to the Soviet period. Because no one wanted to have blood on their hands for shooting the Polish officers. For the first time, the Russian government was acknowledging the crime committed and the pain that the Poles still feel for that crime. How could it have happened that the plane crashed and didn't reach the airport? Worse, the president's plane crashed on Russian soil. This was a chief of state of a neighboring country, an extremely sensitive political mission. Russian experts have conducted an investigation and reported their findings. The Polish pilots are at fault. It seemed there was some kind of dirty trick here. What is that massacre? Is that the one where the, was it the Russians that killed 34,000 Polish officers? Katlin massacre was a series of mass executions of nearly 22,000 Polish military officers. See, I was pretty close. Yeah, carried out by the Soviet Union, specifically the NKVD, People's Commissarist for Commissariat for Internal Affairs, the Soviet secret police. God, that's a lot of people, 22,000. Can you imagine? I didn't even know that the military is that big. 1940. I just don't have the concept. And that's it's sad. Did you know that when the Russians kept some of the POWs from World War II, you know, the Germans? They, they kept them for like 10 years after the war. Yeah. Besides the ones that died in captivity. Among a great number of German prisoners of war recently released by Soviet Russia, a group of about 20 returned to Munich, their hometown. After 10 years of separation, it's easy enough to understand the scene of overwhelming joy as they were reunited with their relatives. Apart from the stories of great hardship which they had to tell, it must surely have been bad enough being kept in captivity so long after the end of the war. They claim that many more prisoners are still held by the Russians with little prospect of being repatriated this year. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, that was, that was nasty. There's been some big political crashes. Yeah. Oh, well, look at, do you know the one in Alaska with the congressman? Uh, when was that? Yeah, it was in the 1970s, 1972. There's a theory out there that there are a number of what are known as vile vortices, about 12, these lozenge-shaped regions spanning several hundred miles each, interspersed around the globe. And the theory is that these particular areas are supercharged with geoelectromagnetic energy, and that abundance of electromagnetic energy results in all kinds of strange things. So the so-called Alaska Triangle is a region in Alaska that is similar to the famous Bermuda Triangle. It's an area where there have been a lot of strange disappearances. Thousands of people have vanished uh, in recent decades without a trace. Uh, back in 1950, for example, a Douglas C-54D military craft, an airplane with 44 personnel on board, vanished on the Alaska-Yukon border without a trace. And there was a massive search mounted, and to this day, no trace of that particular airplane, which is a large airplane, has ever been found. In addition, you have UFO sightings, strange creature reports, 
all types of anomalous phenomenon. What I found when I was doing my research in the Alaskan Triangle was that a number of these missing person cases legitimately could not be solved. This wasn't just a case of someone being mauled by a bear or falling into a crevasse. I mean, these were often people that were going about their daily lives. They weren't out on some grand adventure. And yet, ultimately, they disappeared uh, for no good reason. Oh, but there was another senator in 2010 who died. Really? So former Senator former Senator Ted Stevens killed in plane crash. Ted Stevens was among five people who died in a plane crash in remote southwest Alaska. Hmm, that was in 2010. Yeah, this, the one I'm thinking of is the 70s. And I think they're still looking for the plane. Wow. Ben Stevens, former Alaska Senate president, dies while hiking at age 63. I'm like, can I tell you that I do not think I should? Be? Oh, it's Hale Boggs, plane vanished in Alaska, October 16th, 1972. Oh. It was a twin engine Cessna. You probably know it now, right? Yeah, yeah. Hale, I remember that name, Hale Boggs. I do not have any business hiking. I do not have any business flying Alaska. Last August, former Alaska Senator Ted Stevens and eight other people were flying deep into Alaska's wilderness on a fishing trip. For reasons still unknown, their plane made a sudden sharp maneuver, then crashed into the thick Alaskan wilderness. Senator Stevens and four other passengers died on impact. Among the survivors, former NASA Administrator Sean O'Keefe and a close colleague of the senators, Jim Moorhart. On Tuesday, the National Transportation Safety Board offered evidence that the pilot's history of medical problems may have contributed to the crash. After that hearing, Mr. Morhard spoke for the first time about the crash and a very long, terrifying night in the wilderness. There were a number of us that just enjoyed fishing, and we certainly enjoyed fishing with Senator Stevens. And we had the opportunity to go up to Alaska to fish for silver salmon. We got into the plane and uh, took off, and I'd say, you know, somewhere between... 30 to 40 minutes into it, you know, I felt an abrupt, I knew we had crashed. And I woke up and Sean O'Keefe, I was on top of Sean, and the first thing I did was I looked down and I saw Bill Phillips next to me and I knew he was gone. And I really had a hard time just my mind comprehending what was going on. And I looked around and all the seats in the plane had been sheared off. And you know, I knew right there that the death that was involved, and it was instant. The plane was at quite an angle, and so I'm sliding headfirst to the back of the plane, and I, I thought I'm going to, I better roll so I don't go, do a face plant, and I ended up with my neck wedged in the back of the plane. Again, I'm in shock. I don't have any idea that I have anything broken or, or hurt, uh, and I can't seem to turn over, and I think, my God, I'm paralyzed or I'm dying. You know, at one point I just made the suggestion, why don't we say the rosary? So here are four Catholic boys just sitting there, and, and all you could hear was the rain and praying. We hear the planes, uh, and they get closer, then they get farther away. And you can imagine your expectations and emotions rise and fall with the noise level of the planes, because you know they're looking for you. And then all of a sudden, one dive bombs our plane. To Sean's credit, he got Willie to get his hand out a crack in the plane and waved it. And the pilot saw it. Helicopters came with rescuers, but by the time they got there, it was dark. And they broke the news to us that we were not going to leave that night. I really just want to emphasize that the first responders were just unbelievable. And they knew 
you know, they didn't have anything to stop the pain for the most part. And they knew that they just had to hang tough with us. And they did everything they could emotionally and physically they could for us. Ciao, darling. Still too early to go to Tiffany's. I guess the next best thing is a drink. I will never be the woman with the perfect hair who can wear white and not spill on it. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. me again and you thought you probably had enough of my voice by now just a quick reminder to find us and follow us on instagram twitter and facebook at miss intrigue pod follow us on pinterest and flipboard where we collect featured stories from across the internet of royalty chronicles of interesting events in history and of course true crime lastly check out our youtube channel because everyone has one right that features playlist of documentaries and other related segments from our podcast topics. And if you want to hit us up, check out MissDeedsAndIntriguePodcast.com. But we don't have a complaints department, just to give you a little heads up. The podcaster or authors assumes no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained on this podcast is an as-is basis with no guarantees of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. A reasonable amount of effort was made to deliver precise data. All views expressed by the podcast hosts or guest co-hosts are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which Carrie, Misdeeds, or Intrigue Podcast, or Larissa have been, am now, or will be affiliated. The content of this podcast is for personal, informational, and entertainment purposes only, and is not to be viewed for commercial use. Misdeeds and Intrigue Podcast respects the intellectual property of others. Any audio clips that were not generated by the podcast host or producer was pulled from the public domain, free use sites, and or from YouTube, or other authorized sites to gather information. The utmost effort was made to credit the author and or production. If at any time you feel that copyright was infringed, please email Carrie at misdeedsandintriguepodcast.com and immediate action will be taken to remove the audio clips that were present for entertainment purposes only.